the ground game is is getting into the community and and making sure that you're going through a listening tour and that you hear what they're saying, you take their input, you let them have their fingerprints on this project. You don't dictate that this is going to be what it is and there's no flexibility and you then build enough support to move a project forward. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded live at his office at Rockefeller Plaza on September 6th, is a conversation with Scott Reckler from RxR Realty, one of the most active investors and one of the most observant and thoughtful voices on real estate in New York, particularly the office market. Although this is part of our September focus on office, our last episode was with Colin Conley from Cousins Properties on high-end office in the Sunbelt markets. This was a wide-ranging discussion with a man with wide-ranging interests and perspectives, certainly in office on these times, on the deep reworking of the commercial real estate markets with a return to a more normalized interest rate environment, and on the responsibility and opportunities we have as an industry in these times. As you might know, and we'll hear within the show, Scott's a civic leader as well as a business leader within our industry. And we talk about the purpose and meaning of civic leadership and responsibility alongside business leadership and fiduciary responsibilities. As we talked it through, the Hebrew expression tikkun olam came up. For those who do not know the concept, Google it. T-I-K-K-U-N-O-L-A-M. It refers to our responsibility to repair the world, which is a deep and important Jewish value that if you have it, is just a deep part of your worldview. And at this time of the Jewish calendar during the high holidays, something resonant for the show. You don't have to be a saint for it to be a personal driver. But if it is a value, it does shift your behavior in your life, including in business, to the long game thinking that we talk about so often on the podcast to what with Scott we referred to as enlightened rather than short-term self-interest. We know that we can translate that long-term thinking to important outcomes, including in development, let me call it city building, where NIMBYs have ruled and where integrity of the developer will move the needle on the conversation and to get important work moving forward versus stuck in mistrust and fear. As have so many guests on the show, Scott exemplifies this through both his business practices as well as his broader activities, which, by the way, includes his podcast, which will hopefully soon be starting up again, Recalibrating Reality. Check out his library of episodes on your favorite podcast app. I think about these topics all the time, both on the show and in my search practice at GRG. It's too highfalutin to go with the Takuna Lam designation, but long-term versus short-term thinking is for sure a value. Now that I guess I'm officially an elder in the business, I look at the business we're building as one based on long-term versus transactional relationships, thought leadership and advisory perspective, alongside what we in the search business refer to as just getting the butt in the chair, and in helping both my colleagues, clients, and candidates in playing that long game in their approach to their business. If we can move everyone's thinking a few notches in that direction, think about how much better we can leverage our work and help our industry address, from the human capital perspective, the business issues of our industry around fundamental topics like housing affordability and supply, the reimagination of our downtowns and sustainability. On the last show, I asked listeners to invite me to their LinkedIn if we're not already connected. 
It's hard for podcasters to communicate with their audience beyond the show, but let's try communicating via LinkedIn. I do send out a post for every show to my connections and will continue to do that, and you can feel free to post back comments on the shows via LinkedIn. As always, I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices and that you find value and wisdom from this week's episode. If so, please recommend the show and your favorite episodes to your friends and colleagues. Please do invite me as a contact on your LinkedIn. And if you have a few minutes, please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. And as always, if you have comments, questions, guest suggestions, or want to get in touch with how ZRG can help your company grow, expand, or think through your human capital needs, please email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Scott. Scott Reckler, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm in your office today on September 6, 2023, and I'll admit I've wanted to have you on the show since we started the podcast six years ago. So thank you for doing this today. No, it's my pleasure. Congratulations on doing this for six years. It's a little bit of work. <laughs> and a service, and it's a service to the industry, so we yeah. appreciate it. We, I love doing it. And I come to today's conversation with a little bit more of an open mic because you're one of real estate's most broad and open thinkers and real estate civic leaders. In addition to leading RXR, you started your own podcast, Recalibrate Reality, which I love, but it's on hiatus. You've served on the board of directors of the New York Fed since 2021. You were chair of the New York Regional Planning Association, vice chair of the board of the Port Authority, where you were instrumental in the redevelopment of Ground Zero, which we all care about and the redevelopment of both LaGuardia and JFK. I have to get to LaGuardia next week. And you're a board member of the MTA, two of the largest transportation infrastructure organizations in the country. I've been, I'm spending the month of September in New York, and one thing I will tell you, just noticing the public infrastructure that's for the benefit of all is such a huge thing in experiencing the city. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. The um, I think because of COVID, a lot of people had not appreciated how much infrastructure work was getting done in New York during the last five years. And now that they've come back and have seen the airports and our new transit halls um, and uh, and some of the additional work that's been done, it's been really eye-opening for a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting, the transit halls. I'm from Philadelphia. As a kid, I came to New York once a month on the weekend, you know, as a teenager. And every time you get to Penn Station, you go, oh, I don't like New York. It's just gross here. And now you go into Moynihan. I haven't right. arrived there yet, but you kind of your spirit is lifted and it feels world class again. No, exactly. And we just also opened up uh, in Grand Central a new terminal right underneath Grand Central, which is also a beautiful terminal and has uh, great access for people coming from the uh, Long Island. It's another hundred fifty thousand commuters are using that terminal. Right. Totally wonderful. So, where I'd like to start because there's so many topics to talk about is I want to know where you're coming from and understand you a little bit, and then your company, and then let's talk about the topics that are most interesting. But you come from a real estate family, maybe your third generation in a storied New York real estate family, and I don't know what that means, but we watch TV shows about folks like this. So <laughs> kind of unpack that a little bit in your own life. Yeah, so, um, you know, my, my grandfather actually began not in real estate. He actually was a... Uh, a art enthusiast, and he was actually manufacturing aluminum art easels uh, right when aluminum became a, uh, uh-huh. a, a new popular technology. And uh, we have this famous story in my family that uh, he was walking down Brighton Beach and uh, pulling two wooden beach chairs 
And my grandmother was walking behind him and screamed, schmuck, why are you making aluminum art easels? Why don't you make aluminum beach chairs? And so he and his uh, brother-in-law filed the patent for the uh, aluminum beach chair uh-huh. and then be, uh, became the largest manufacturer and distributor of aluminum beach chairs. And through that, built uh, distribution centers, warehouses, et cetera. And they sold the business, but kept the real estate. And mm-hmm. then so their approach to real estate was one of, um, you know, a, a little bit more of how to be more innovative, how to follow new trends and customers, uh, thinking about building a business with a competitive advantage versus lots of times you have developers that are just about doing the deal, you know, where they were much more about building something of scale and ecosystems and, um, you know, in communities around that. And so that was something that they did. And my father and uncle followed in, in, a, sil- in a similar ilk where they began to get following the customers. And this was really more as the suburbs around New York City began to take hold. And, be, you know, so they were focused on office and uh, industrial in the suburbs, but even in the office buildings early to sustainability, early to full amenities with health clubs and meeting spaces and thinking about, you know, these as communities, not just buildings, uh, but really how do you activate what happens in those buildings? And same thing with the industrial parks and the the, the synergies and the ecosystem they were trying to cr- create. And so there's, there's sort of, it's foundational to sort of what led my brothers and myself, my cousin and I, to, in terms of how when we got into the business, it was sort of an innate way of looking at the business, uh, growing up with it uh, sort of in our in our blood. And then I came into the business in the uh, in the, the uh, late 80s, early 90s, and it was very much like it is today, where the world was turned upside down. <laughs> and a lot of what had been the normal practice for decades need to be thought of differently, of you know, real estate being less um, parochial or local and more institutional mm-hmm. in nature. And, uh, and so coming with the background of uh, studying at NYU and uh, and sort of a, a more uh, clear-eyed uh, perspective without the, the the legacy views of this, I sort of led the charge to take the family uh, company public in uh, in 1995, and then uh, grew Rexon and the rest is uh, the rest is history. Yeah, let's go back to a couple of things you said because sure. they're interesting. One is you talk about amenities. Was the portfolio largely in the suburbs? In which case you need amenities where in the city the amenities surround you. Is that? Yeah, so there, there were office parks and, there was, and, and part of that was the case. But these were, they weren't in um, desolated office parks. They weren't in destinations. They were in, in sort of infill suburban markets where there was still amenities. But I think the thought process was that when people came to a workplace, mm-hmm. it wasn't about just coming to work, but where are there you know, where are there places for them to engage, where there's uh, using art, using landscaping, outdoor spaces, uh, health clubs, uh, you know, food offerings. So really thinking about it as a place that people would go to um, and and feel that they were more fulfilled, that they're not just stuck at their desk all day long. Uh Got it. And then you came into the business during the great financial, not the great, the great recession, not the the great recession, the the, the SNL crisis. The SNL crisis, correct. I was at the RTC, so I remember the SNL crisis well. (laughs) And so you took the company public and then sold the company. So talk about what it became as it was public and then why you sold it and what that meant to you. And then we'll talk about the rebirth and the new company. From sure. There. So so we took the company public in, in 1995. Yeah. At the time, we had about $300 million portfolio of office and industrial buildings. 
that were uh, uh, based on, on Long Island, so all suburban. And it really was the, the, the view that uh, to be successful and grow the business, accessing the public markets would give us the ability to acquire other uh, generational office and industrial companies that uh, were going through similar transitions. And so we actually began to use uh, uh, and go on an expansion plan and start acquiring other companies in Westchester, New Jersey, uh-huh. Connecticut, and ultimately New York City. And by you know the late 90s, we're the largest owner of uh, office and logistics uh, in New York. And, and through that process, Again, you know, really thinking about community building and also what are the changing dynamics and trends that were happening. So one of the things in in 1998, as an example, uh, we began to focus on demographics and changing about how students were living in on campuses. And we uh, co-founded a student housing company called American Campus Communities Uh with one dorm in uh, in Austin, Texas, Uh and spent a lot of time building that business um, and and figuring out how do you do public-private partnerships uh, with universities that were had you know big inflows of students, but had you know a, a certain amount of dollars where they were going to invest, and they could do that in labs or they could do it in student housing. And if we could find a way to do it for student housing, right. it's a win-win. And that was probably our you know our first um, experience really thinking about public-private partnerships uh-huh. and also about um, really activating what happens within the four walls of the building, right? Because your customers were the students, the parents, yeah. the university, you had the RAs, the RDs, a whole level of responsibility and activation that we had to mm-hmm. really perfect. And so that company um, you know, uh, grew very successfully, spent a lot of time building it. And in 2004, the public market said, listen, you know, RXR, Rexon rather, you know, we, you, we want you to be a New York office yep. company or an office and industrial company. And we had this big logistics business that was national. We had the student housing business. We had a service office business. And so we went through a divestiture process. And it was frustrating for us because it, we just saw those businesses were really picking up steam. Right. And right when they were really picking up steam, we were being forced to sell them because the public markets were getting more and more restrictive Yep. And much more short-sighted at the time, right? And so, and so we actually took our ACC public at that time yep. and uh, it went, has done extraordinarily well, sold last year to Blackstone for $13 yep. Bill billion. Bill Bales was on the show. Uh, Bill Bales, right. So Bill, I put Bill as, uh, as CEO of the company awesome. when uh, he was there and, it was, you know, and he was a great partner uh, to work with and a great guy. But, but the, you know, so you could see the energy that Bill brings, right? And that's, so our, our vision has always been about, we're not a builder of buildings, we're builder of businesses that have competitive advantages that serve people mm-hmm. by providing them, um, you know, uh, real estate, right? What are their needs? What it's a, whether it's a home or whatever that might be, or you know, multifamily office, industrial. What are their needs? How do we serve their needs using the built environment? And um, and so that that when when that happened in '04, from that moment on, my partners and I said, you know, maybe the public markets isn't the right, right. source of capital for where we want to take our business strategically. Uh-huh. And, and and that time began to think about, okay, let's see when there may be a moment to exit the public markets. And in 2006, there was you know a period where there was a significant amount of uh, M&A activity. The okay. markets were frothy. There was a lot of you know speculation that rents and prices were gonna still go up. Our stock price was at an all time high. And so we decided to sell the uh, the company, ran a process, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, ran it for us. And in January of 2007, 
sold the company at a, uh, at uh, a 700% return to our shareholders, six and a half percent, six six and a half billion dollar valuation, and immediately started RxR with a view of, of of leaning into the customer, leaning into demographic changes, new uh-huh. innovations, and having that drive our strategy going forward. Cool. Let's go back. I love to go back because I have a couple questions. First of all, most of the REITs that went public in 1995 did it because they were in a pickle and then they got to grow. Were you in a pickle at the time or were you doing it just for growth? Yeah, ours was, I think, um, a was growth and also a generational transition, right? We mm-hmm. saw this opportunity to expand more geographically. Got it. And we had, the family had a lot of equity in the business. Uh-huh. Um, and fortunately, my father and uncle were very, um, they, they, they were never big believers in using personal guarantees. So, uh-huh. you know, while they were active developers, they funded it and uh, that was where it was. So we were, we were relatively healthy on, on that front, but it was really for us a chance for the next generation to expand the business beyond where it was before. And an acknowledgement that to expand it, the world had shifted where using public securities and the public markets was a way that we were going to be able to grow at a much more rapid pace mm-hmm. uh, at that period of time. Yeah. And I remember at the time, I, I didn't know you, I don't know you, but I remember you you had a reputation, you were restless, you were interesting, you were more innovative then the straitjacket that was becoming what the public REITs had to become. So this all makes good sense. That's right. And that, and that was, you know, even, you know, there's even our movement into Manhattan. I mean, I remember when we were going public even, you know, I had this uh, slide that was this slide of the whole New York metro region right. and our expansion plan. And I remember on our, our first roadshow, I'm giving the roadshow, and I put up what I thought was going to be that slide. And it was just a slide of Long Island. And I finished the, the session and I turned to the banker. I said, what happened to the slide that showed the whole New York metro region? He said, listen, you've never left Long Island. So you have no track record outside of this. Go public, then you can do it. And then you can put the slide up. But until then, sell what you do. Right. And, uh, and then you can expand later. So that was uh, the, uh, the premise. And that's what we ultimately did. Makes total sense. So then when you form RXR, you form it with partners and a brother, cousin? Yeah, so I have uh, Mike Matoro, who at the time was our CFO and president, uh, Jason Barnett, who was our vice chair and general counsel, and you know both partners and good friends. And then my brother, Todd, who has run our development and construction, were the, our, my, my other partners in this business. And, uh, and you know, we had worked together uh, for so many years, right? right? And so it was you know, an unusual moment where you can take a step back, take a blank piece of paper and say, okay, what did we think worked really well and, mm-hmm. and disciplines and, um, and you know, structures that we should continue to uh, use at RxR and which were things that were restrictive that you know, inhibited us as a public company that we mm-hmm. want to shed. And so we spent a lot of time designing our organizational structure our capital structure to really be aligned with where we want our strategy to, to go forward. And, and the real thing with our strategy was one that was was to meant to be agile, right? Was not to ever get to a point where we just got stuck and said, this is working and let's just keep doing it is because we recognized that there was a world that was dynamic mm-hmm. and that we needed to uh, respond to the changing needs of our customers, the changing demographics, the changing community needs. And, and so it was meant to be one that was a sort of constant evolution. And that's what we've done 
uh, every year. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about the business, and then we're going to talk about issues, but talk about the business from several perspectives. First of all, what's your AUM, just to get a sense? We'll talk AUM portfolio and capital structure. Is it a fund management business? Right. I should know this, but I don't. No, 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 no problem. So, yeah, so we, so we, we set out to um, find investors that had longer-term perspectives, that uh, was institutional capital, that we had a similar vision of ours as to where the world was going. And uh, in 2007 and eight was a great time to sell a business, not a great yeah. time to start a business, right? Yes. So my partner, I, uh, Mike Matoro, spent a lot of time traveling around the world, meeting with investors, telling our story, um, and then ultimately began to find a cohort of investors that actually had missed the great financial crisis challenges. And so this was a good opportunity to actually enter the real estate market, particularly in New York, and looked at RxR as a, uh, a great vessel to do that. And so we set up uh, investment funds, so discretionary funds that also have uh, co-investment capabilities. So the people that invest in our funds, um, for almost every dollar in the fund, they get $3 or $4 of co-invest that they can then choose where they want to put more capital mm -hmm. on a more concentrated basis. And so, you know, to date, we've raised now about $11 billion of equity into our funds and have over $20 billion of total assets under management. Our, you know, our, our first entry back into the market was in August of 09. So again, we sold in January of 07, didn't come back into the market of August of 09, still had about 150 people working for us. So we kept the core team and subsidized that through that process. But it was, you know, an uncertain time. And the first building we bought actually was 1166 Avenue de Americas leased to JP Morgan. And I recall you know, having weeks of investment committee battles as to what happens if JP Morgan goes out of business, right. what's this building worth, right? Uh -huh. and, and, and so it sort of shows you the level of uncertainty. We, people forget how much uncertainty there was in 09 that we have to question whether or not JP Morgan was gonna be a going concern right. in that mix. But then, you know, at the time, we had conviction around New York, we had conviction around uh, the, the economy bouncing back and the diversity of the economy, particularly watching the tech companies starting to grow. And so we bought about four and a half billion dollars of office buildings between 09 and 2011, um, and then recapped out a large chunk of that where we sold a 49% interest um, and got all of our capital back and kept 51% of, yep. of that in that mix. Questions. One is you didn't make any of those bets before the crash. So everything happened in the vintage of trouble, which is a great place to start a company. Right. No, right. That, that was the good part to start the company in that context of it. As I said, we, we were patient waiting for yeah. that period of time. So looking back, you know, people say, you know, what do you regret? The regret is we probably should have taken a year and a half off and, mm -hmm. uh, and just reflected and relaxed a little bit versus, you know, you know, trying to run into the face of the were wind you, of the downturn. Were you patient or were you lucky? Did you know you saw the crash or you saw the peak? So you felt this was coming and then said, oh, hey, we're just going to wait. Or were you bidding actively on buildings during that first 18 months? But luckily you didn't win any. No, we, we really didn't bid on so much. You know, first of all, there was not a lot of transaction activity, right? Uh -huh. So there was a little bit of, you know, at the time, there was not a lot of price discovery. Yeah. People were anxious about where things were. And and I think, you know, one of the things that we I mentioned earlier, right, that the concept that when we formed ArxR, um, and it was started a little bit before that, was to be uh, agile, right? To recognize this, recalibrate reality, the world yeah. changes. So one of the disciplines we do is is every year, 
we write a white paper. And it's a paper that we do internally. Uh, we used to not share it all with anyone because we wanted to make sure that we weren't biased, you know, and just uh, subconsciously, we wanted to be intellectually honest and drown out the noise of the markets, mm. drown out the noise of what everyone else is saying and say, okay, what's happening in the, in the world? How's that impacting our customers? How's that impacting our communities? What's happening on the ground of where we're doing business and how that's gonna impact things? And with that, you know, those insights and interviewing a lot of our uh, colleagues and CEOs of our clients and, and you know, spending a lot of time having these discussions, we put this white paper together that gives us a perspective that then leads us to with conviction on a path. And sometimes that path mm -hmm. is something that manifests itself in six months. Sometimes it's 24 months because the opportunity doesn't necessarily coincide with what the vision is. But it does give us you know, clarity as to where we're heading mm -hmm. and, and it enables us to make decisions for ourselves without having to necessarily be influenced by what everyone else in the market is doing at that time, right? And mm -hmm. then it also gives us discipline that when things come in that may sound exciting, if it's not consistent with that strategy, we quickly shed it away and don't focus on it, which is you know something that I think saves a lot of time in the mix of things. And it gives us also a baseline that we can continually look back on and say, okay, this is what we thought was gonna happen in the world. This right. is actually what's happening in the world. Uh, maybe we need to adjust. So we just, you know, we, we, we really go through it. And these papers, you know, can be 60 pages and, mm -hmm. uh, it started that I would write them all myself. And now we have a team of five that work with me that we do this every year. But do you like do it over a three month period or do you? you know, so I would always, you know, I'd start at the end of December is uh -huh. when you start the framing of it. And then I would, you know, the, I would always say sort of go through the, um, the NFL playoff season because uh -huh. I would sit there with the games on the background and go through that process. Right. The COVID situation has changed a little bit because we've been doing more frequent updates to it because of the frequency of changes in that right. mix. And that's has thrown the timing off a little bit, but it's been a, but it's a great discipline. Yeah. And um, if you go back now and read our many years of these white papers, it, it, you know, they really are, you know, serve as uh, sort of precursors to what our next strategic moves are. Do any of them fundamentally question the themes that you started the business with, with nimble creative, and maybe a lot around office market, I guess, but you didn't say property type at the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, no, so I mean, I think, you know, we, we had always had a view that we were gonna diversify away from office at the appropriate time, just like we were going to student housing and logistics uh -huh. and, and other products uh, along the way. And so, um, but part of the, 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 the challenge in that, going back to my earlier story about that slide I had in my, my roadshow IPO, right, right? Was you need to give your investors confidence that you're gonna do that and that you're not being flippant about that. And so part of the advantage of the white paper, for example, is that when we began to think about building our multifamily business and, and you know, that strategy, that was in our white paper. And that was two years before we did our first transaction. But we would share that with our investors and say, here's what we're seeing, right? We're seeing in New York that they had this incredible influx of the best and brightest people from around the world. Mm -hmm. They all wanna work here. The companies are here and we have this self-reinforcing cycle, but we're also becoming a victim of our own success, which is people can't afford to live here anymore. There's not enough housing. And so the strategy we laid out was, let's go and look at the outer ring around New York and you know where there's transportation back to New York, and you have these suburbs that you know, historically were you know the the vibrancy of these communities, but over time people moved away from these downtowns and and ended up moving into more of the sort of the white picket fence 
planned communities. Right. And these downtowns were long on parking lots, but short on tax revenue. Yeah. And so we would go uh, to these uh, communities and the leadership and say, you know, let's do a public-private partnership where we'll be the master developer and we'll do these large rezonings of the whole downtowns or sections of the uh -huh. downtowns. And we'd have the right to build on municipal parking lots, municipal buildings, as long as we replaced it. And we pre-agreed on, you know, uh, tax incentives and density. And we'd approach it um, from an economic development standpoint. So it wasn't meant to be that we're just about developing a building, but that building would be a spark to help generate sustainable economic growth for that community at large. And uh -huh. we'd work with the- Examples are- Like New Rochelle, Yonkers, Glen Cove, Hempstead. And we work with public safety, education, the non-for-profits, the small businesses where we'd help work with small businesses so that they weren't gentrified out, but that they would adjust their product offering now uh -huh. to support this new cohort of people coming to live there, right? And so- uh, and we built a, a large pipeline, probably you know six, seven thousand units of development rights, and then built a development multifamily development company around that, where we hired a hundred people to bring that to life. And that's something that, uh, again, there was just a, a large article in the uh, Wall Street Journal that uh, showcased New Rochelle as an example mm -hmm. of how a suburb can do this and build enough critical mass that uh, that it, it becomes effective. And you think about it from a standpoint of a new a, someone in New York. You're now 30 minutes away by train to Midtown Manhattan. You're paying 30 to 50% less in rent mm -hmm. for a New York City quality apartment that's larger, that's right. in a downtown that's walkable, that has diversity, culture, character, uh -huh. restaurants. So it's an alternative. And so that was, again, a thematic uh, approach that was laid out in our white paper. And then we hired people like a gentleman named Seth Pinsky, who was president of economic development uh -huh. for Mike Bloomberg and a bunch of other people to build a team around executing that strategy. Right. Question about that. Did some of those cities revitalize better than, or some of those suburban cities revitalize more successfully than others? And what would be the attributes that would make it work or work so-so? Yeah, you know, very good question. And, and there's, there's two attributes to this. The first and, and the, the uh, most important is having um, effective and aligned leadership mm. in, the, in that city, right? If you mm -hmm. did, and so, you know, you really need to approach this as a partnership. And then when you, we sit down with the mayor or other stakeholders in the city, you know, we're big believers that it has to be a win-win-win for everyone. And lots right. of times developers come in and they, you know, they can outsmart someone in this negotiation but then nothing ever gets done because it's too one-sided and ultimately that never happens, right? So our yeah. view is you want to have a, a counterparty that is uh, trusts you and has as much uh, expertise on their side of the table as you have on your side of the table. So you can have a balanced agreement on the other side of that. So that that that's when it works. And then the, the second piece is there are, are some uh, communities that are more mature and, and, and have, are more ripe for this than others, you know, the, mm -hmm. and there's, you know, there's, uh, like New Rochelle was is probably the, the the best example. You know, Glen Cove was another good example. Mm -hmm. But we've had Hempstead as an example, which is in a suburban um, Long Island community that is more socioeconomically challenged than the others, more politically 
I would say unstable than than the others, and so that's been a more challenging area to really get this program to work. Mm-hmm. And is there a dynamic between strong developer and trustworthy developer, strong civic structure that is a good counterparty, but then you need the citizens not to be nimby's and to see the vision and go for it. And how do you control that? Because that's the hardest one to control these days because they just want to say no. Right. And, and, I, and I think that's the, you know, the way to try to control that is to make them part of the process, right? I think mm-hmm. that, you know, we frame this as you have to have a good air game and a good ground game. The mm-hmm. air game is working with the elected officials well and, and, uh-huh. and that mix. The ground game is is getting into the community and, and making sure that you're going through a listening tour and that you hear what they're saying you take their input, you let them have their fingerprints on this project, you don't dictate that this is gonna be what it is and there's no flexibility, mm-hmm. and you then build enough support to move a project forward. Now, there's always gonna be some naysayers. You know, the, the probably the, the most uh, rewarding part is that when you're done with the development, the naysayers are your biggest fans, right? And I think that the, so part of this is, you know, the you can build models of these types of communities that then I think will, in the future, make uh-huh. it easier for the next round. I want to keep asking questions about this, but let's let's move on. But first, sure. a question going backwards, because you talked about your investors. Is it an open-ended fund structure, or do you have closed-end funds? These are the closed-end funds, um, and these uh, the, the we have we, we used to sort of have what we could call flagship value-added funds, uh-huh. and they would invest, uh, as I said, you know, into the fund. Our last fund was about a billion dollars of discretionary capital, but then $3 of the co-investment. So, and, and what we like, and it's mostly non-US investors, uh, just by the nature of when we started this, it was uh-huh. just, so it was Canadian, European, Asia, Mideastern investors. But by having the co-investment, uh, you have a, a ongoing communication with your investors, right? This is this is not a really a passive LP in the sense that if you want, as, a, as in, opportunities come in, you need to know which of your investors would have interest in that opportunity. And mm-hmm. early in the process, our teams integrate with their teams to bring them up to speed so they can assess that co-investment, you know, by the time we're ready to close versus, you know, 10 days before you're closing saying you're interested or not right. interested. And quick question, if you contrast having those investors as partners and having the public market as a partner, how did, did you capture that flexibility that you wanted to have to be able to do what you need to evolve into? You know, very much so. But, you know, what happened in the public markets is right after Reg FD, mm-hmm. it became a one-way relationship. You didn't really have a partner anymore. You know, you go back to the Warren Buffett stories of, of you know, that your shareholders, your partner, and they're going to be there for the long term. After Reg FD, you really couldn't share any thoughts or get advice from your investor without sharing with everyone, right? right. So your investor really reacted after you took action. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that was really, I think, to me, where the public markets became less attractive versus when we first went public, where I could bounce around ideas with investors and say, here's what we're thinking about, get their feedback and build that in. On the on the private side, um, again, they're like-minded investors, they're in it for the long term. There's a lot of back and forth communication. So we learn a lot from getting their perspective, which they're hearing from a lot of their relationships around the world that help inform us. And they learn from hearing what we're hearing on the ground and mm-hmm. the markets in which we do business. Mm-hmm. You asked the question, did they provide us with the flexibility? And I think the answer to that, if you look at RxR today, right, we're now in you know, 12,000 units of multifamily. We have logistics, we're in self-storage. 
Um, we're, we're building a, a, a $4 billion airport at JFK. We've expanded from New York to Phoenix, Denver, Dallas, North Carolina, Tampa. And so the, my point is that all these expansions into products and geography was with the, with the support of the investors that um, have been with us for a lot of years because they see the vision, they see the connectivity of sort of where our expertise, what's our differentiator, and, um, and, and have the confidence that we'll be able to execute. Yeah, thank you for that. And when, and how much of that portfolio is office? So, so today, we have, today we have about 20 million feet of office. Okay. And when you think about those investors who stick with you in multiple funds, so they're ongoing investors with you, how do you think about overreach in terms of those different product types in those different geographies from here? Are you mature so now it makes sense? And so it took some time to become who you are, who could go there, or yeah. was that always part of the plan? No, no, I think that was- And uh, the white papers too. Right, so I think the white it was part of it. To us, really, the, the thought process for us was, as we began to think about product type, I talked about, for example, the residential already, right? what was it, housing, right? The logistics, a business we'd been in before, so it was obvious to us, infrastructure from my time at the Port Authority Mm-hmm. Um, was clear, you know, in the MTA that, that we had that expertise and we recruited people in to participate. So it was, again, marrying the talent with the strategy and uh-huh. with our core competencies of what we have in our organization right. was how we would bring that together. And then on the, the national expansion was a, a recognition that um, you know, it, while there was this, you know, the knowledge worker was sort of the driver of our strategy, right, that talent pool and the companies that were after that talent pool. Now, New York is obviously unprecedented in terms of scale and diversity of talent, mm-hmm. but you began to see a more distributed approach by companies looking for other spots where the talent was migrating. And this was even before COVID, that COVID accelerated that migration into some of these other cities. So we targeted cities that where we thought that knowledge right. ecosystem was gonna continue to develop and had similarities in terms of those customers to what we were accustomed to in, in New York. And when you went to those cities, was it following the demographics or were you taking an expertise like New Rochelle, which takes a lot of moving parts and not everyone can do? So were you doing trying to do New Rochelle's there or were you building an apartment building? Yeah, good which good is question. So the answer is both, right? So we, we first started with, you know, again, in a white paper analysis, right, of what are the cities that we would target? And we came up with the sort of theme of it called EDS, MEDS, and WELL-LEDS. Good education systems, good healthcare systems, which usually mm-hmm. tend to be proxies for where talent wants to locate. Right. And good leadership that's investing in infrastructure, quality of life, affordability, <laughs> sustainability, culture, character. And then when we went into those markets, we would then go, like the newer shells, to the outer ring where there had just had been public transportation Built so, for example, in Denver, we're in the River North District, right by mm-hmm. the light rail, or in Dallas, we're in the Deep Ulm, right where there's a new light rail back into downtown. So, we're right on the edge, and that's where you see the schools are and the restaurants, and they have a little more authenticity uh-huh. than the glass buildings downtown, right? And so, we've taken that model and have expanded it into those those other regions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you about Civic, but let's not pivot yet to okay. Civic, and let's pivot to. COVID, because COVID 
did force recalibration of reality in a hefty way and to question your assumptions about how the world worked. So talk about when COVID hit, what kind of white paper did you write then? Yeah, so COVID, it, it, it was, uh, you're right, the ultimate of recalibrate reality. Yeah. And interestingly, I was uh, on January, I, I want to say maybe 24th, 25th, I was, uh, I fly into Hong Kong and uh, we have big investors in Hong Kong. So I was flying to meet with um, some of our investors and it was actually just doing a one day trip in and out of Hong Kong. And um, I flew in in the morning, went and had my days of meetings. Uh, and by the time I got back to the airport, there was a line out the airport door where they were taking wow. people's temperatures before they would let you into the airport. And it was the first time I heard of the coronavirus. And on that trip home, I was finishing the uh, white paper. And the last line in the white paper was, you know, I'm, as I'm leaving Asia, there's this a lot of chatter about this coronavirus. Right. Uh, it seems to be contained, but if it ends up coming to the United States, everything mm -hmm. we just wrote is moot and all mm -hmm. bets are off. Right. And that's what ended up happening. And so that uh, that white paper really never saw the light of day because we, you know, we realized it was going to change. So we ended up rewriting in the white paper to reflect our views on sort of the post-COVID world and and what to do. Um, but, you know, it, it you know, it, and everyone, you know, when, when COVID happens, um, and when COVID happened, I think, you know, for us, we were in sort of the epicenter. New Rochelle is an example was, you know, the place was the first epicenter in New York where the right. National Nursing. Guard they had to come in and, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, blockade the city. And I remember being on the phone with the mayor, you know, what can we do to be helpful? And, you know, he, he couldn't even think of what to do because he could never have imagined in the spot that they were in. But, you know, this is where our team really rose to the occasion about being uh, a um, not just a investor in a community but part of a community and we you know we created a, a program called rxr volunteer where we had our tenants the people that worked in our buildings come together and volunteer their time to help small businesses uh -huh. uh, non-for-profits individuals that were needing to apply for support or figure out how to survive through this period um, so we had, whether it was lawyers or marketing people or accountants, and so we had a whole army effectively of people that we, you know, helped support our communities, as well right. as obviously financial support and everything else that we did through that process. And then for us as a firm, it was, okay, you know, this is, this is the moment to recalibrate reality, right? We need to every day, um, you know, monitor what's happening. And we pride ourselves on really having a pulse of, you mm -hmm. know, what was the public health issues that were, were out there using all of our relationships in the political world and healthcare system and the, the large companies and clients of ours hearing what they were going through right. and, and, you know, calibrating all of that to guide our strategy. And I mean, I reached out to uh, General Stan McChrystal in the, one of the first days of this going on, who I didn't even yeah. have a relationship with, but I, you know, I knew what he had done in the Mideast. And it was when that battle was the first one where they've sent from a centralized command and control to a distributed command and control. Uh -huh. And I was th that sort of stuck in my mind as to how we now all have, we're working remotely and everyone was had to think of how we we're gonna stay in, in communication. And uh, so he got on a, a Zoom with us and you know spent two hours walking right. us through that experience. And we took a lot of his tools in terms of having every morning task force meetings and expanding that over time, literally every day where we had our entire uh, leadership team, almost probably, I guess, like 60, 70 people on a, a call every morning right. where, you know, I'd kick it off, we'd have an agenda, 
And in 45 minutes, we'd be off and people would be running and going from there. So it was a real, you know, extraordinary process, obviously. We were very active right. through COVID. And really, for us, it became about, you know, that, that you know, the, the, the civic engagement, focusing on all of our uh, the, the communities, our stakeholders, our employees, right. you know, communication to our investors. You know, there was just because of the nature of who we are as a firm, you know, we're, we're so immersed into our community. So what everyone was going through, you know, we were actively, um, you know, you know, playing a role of trying to help people navigate through COVID. Of course. But right. from an investment standpoint, you have to give it time to start making some sense. And while you're giving it that time, you're fighting like hell because you had to. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I will say, like, as an example, I think when I don't remember the exact time, but I think it was June of, of 2020 where we, um, you know, made a decision um, in, and I think we finished that white paper at the time that people were fleeing New York mm-hmm. and all these apartment buildings were emptying out and occupancies were going from the high 90s to the low 80s. And we had a chunk of capital left in one of our fund vehicles and we had an investment call and said, listen, we want to use all of this to buy multifamily in the New York metro area that right now is emptying out. And we ended up buying, you know, making investments in $2 billion of multifamily mm-hmm. in the heat of COVID. Right. Um, with a view, again, with conviction that people were going to come back. And uh, and ultimately, that's what happened. And now they're 99% leased and the rents are way above the you know, 2019 level. So it was, you know, we, we went through that process and came out with, okay, conviction is multifamily. Didn't uh-huh. have the conviction on office, but multifamily was a place to be. And then the focus of how do we get people back to the workplace was a big area of our um, time and, and, and thinking about how to use technology, teaming up with the local healthcare systems, Microsoft, McKinsey, and we really, really tried to build mm-hmm. models of how you can bring people back and monitor social distancing, monitor air quality, other changes in, you know, in, in health related issues so people felt comfortable coming back to the workplace. And let's come back to office in a minute because I'm curious about the multifamily bet in New York. And I think your conviction was New York and the conviction that New York will come back. It will always come back because it's here. And I live in San Francisco where we have questioned that reality. Right. Or the timeline for it to be back is still five or six years out, it feels like. But New York, you knew wouldn't be that way. Right. Well, I mean, you know, in New York, you know, New York is a as a city different than San Francisco, right? The level of diversity, of culture, of industry, of global magnetism that exists, mm-hmm. you know, for, for people that want to be uh, in New York has always been something that's been remarkable, right, to me. And, and, and so, I didn't know how long it was going to take for people to come back, right? right. And we didn't know at the time what the public health crisis was going to, you know, when it was going to ultimately work itself through. But you knew there was a dislocation and this was not going to be forever. So somewhere over a three to five year period was our thought process. It turned out to be more like 18 months that these mm-hmm. apartments were going to get filled back up again. And then rents would start recovering and uh, and the and the city would start uh, thriving. And as you said, you're, you've been here, you know, you walk these streets, the restaurants are packed. Even in the heat of summer, you know, in New York, you know, the, on, on weekdays, 
in Midtown, you know, you couldn't get reservations at restaurants, right? So people right. are back in New York in a, in a big way. It, it's interesting. I'm trying to think because I'm from San Francisco, I'm from Philadelphia, but I live in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. And I think so hard about this and I try to differentiate why and where. One of my recent guests on the podcast was Matt Pastrank from Post Brothers down in Philly. And he talked about in Philly, it's the most walk to work city in the country. I didn't know that because I think maybe New York is because the amount of residential adjacent to the office is so high that makes it the opposite of San Francisco where the downtown empties at night and then you lose the streetscape and homeless move in because right. there's no one there. And, that, and that's part of it too in New York, right? We have, we have a much more live work city Right. Then uh, then places like San Francisco uh, or other cities around the country, for that matter, that the downtowns really empty out at night. Right. These downtowns don't empty out at night. Now, there's pockets where, you know, there's more residential than than other pockets. But clearly it's diversified. And then the subway system, obviously. Right. The transit system. You know, you know, you, when you think about New York, we have eight million people that live right. in New York City. You take the New York metro area, that's 20 million people that all have connectivity back to New York City. You have, you know, the Broadway, all the museums, all the parks, all the restaurants, uh, you know, the, the energy that is New York is, is, is unique. And then I'll also say there is, and, and I think this is a, a factor, there is a level of civic commitment mm-hmm. to New York by New Yorkers that I think is not necessarily the same in scale and concentration in other parts around the country and the world. And I, and I, and I think this goes back to the early 70s of a New Yorker sort of has this sense of affinity for being a New Yorker. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, our city is our city. And, you know, when, you know, the, the Gerald Ford said, drop dead New York, New York went the other way and right. rose and said, we're going to solve our problems. And then 9-11 was another example where, you know, we were knocked down hard. And, you know, this, this city um, and everyone in this city, you know, rose to the occasion to do its part to, to help us through that crisis and help rebuild lower Manhattan and reposition New York to the New York of the vibrancy that it is today. Yeah, I wanna come back to office cause that's the topic of the day, but let's, because you pivoted there, I wanna talk about your civic involvement, but also what we talked about when you walked in the room was my experience the last few days was the dollars spent on public infrastructure. Let me rattle off a couple that my wife and I walk around going, holy cow. One is homelessness is less on the streets because every homeless person has a place to stay at night, supposedly. Right. Two, we walk, we rode bikes on the west side bike path, which right. went for Hudson 50 yards, streets yeah. or something. It was just awesome. And of course, uh, uh, not Skyline, the... Um, the High Line. The High Line and the extension to the High Line. Right. There's such an emphasis on public infrastructure. We were at Lincoln Center the other day, and there was opera playing out on the street. This doesn't happen in every city. And people spend money to make that happen. It's your taxpayer dollars that do it, but it's your quality of life at the same time. That's right. And, then, and it goes back earlier when I was talking about leadership, right? I mean, this was leadership, uh, some of this going back to the, the 80s and early 90s when you know, if you went on that west side back then, uh, you know, there were no parks, right? There was no esplanade right. that traveled the whole west side. And those piers that you Little saw, Island. Little Island, we, if you go to Pier 57, which we redeveloped and put Google in and put the public park, it's the largest rooftop park in New York City uh, that, uh, that we uh, just opened uh, this year. 
I mean, you know, these are extraordinary gifts to the city that came piece by piece, but in totality, you now have opened up a, a quality of life that didn't exist, and that then drives neighborhoods to develop around those those mm-hmm. those areas, right? And that you know, and then and then buildings and companies wanted to be there. So I think people underestimate the importance of of infrastructure and not just transportation infrastructure, but quality of life infrastructure. Um, and you know, the I would say like the, the Bloomberg administration was very very focused on the importance of that and the importance of of taking the streets to be and the and the city to make it bike friendly and pedestrian friendly as not just uh, you know car friendly is in that context of things right so uh, so these are things that I think has made New York special right and and, uh-huh. and, and we've been making those those types of uh, investments and there's you know there's throughout the whole five boroughs there's these little oasises like that that has you know continues to attract people this is why Brooklyn now has become you know, a, a destination in its own right, not right. just a borough of New York, right? And uh, and you've seen, if you look across the East River to Long Island City and the parks along the East River, similar situation. So it's it's it really is a great dynamic and a great model. Uh, and then Lower Manhattan, you know, and if you you know you're here at 9/11 this week, yeah. You know, I'm I'm vice chair of the of the 9/11 Memorial Museum and watching the rebuilding of what has happened at Lower Manhattan has been you know one of the most fascinating and inspirational things I've seen in my life because here you had a um, place that was marked in tragedy that then became a place that was marked in in hope and memory of, of, of what had happened but what the future also brings. And if, if you go there today, you know, even the, the memorial itself, it's a public park, right? right? You have the two footprints for where the World Trade Center used to stand that you know, are, are ominous and beautiful at the same time. And then there's benches and trees and grass and people are out sitting outside and reflecting and remembering, but it's not depressing. No. And and now we have the Performing Arts Center that opened, which uh, is this beautiful glowing facility that is gonna be, you know, uh, a mecca for arts and culture in lower Manhattan, right? And so. It, this, these are all, you know, ingredients to a recipe of how you can make a city or a community thrive. And, and you know, when we talk about places like even New Rochelle or other places around the country that we focus on, we take those lessons and we try to apply them to those communities because they're not, this, this is what makes it different, right? Uh-huh. Irrespective of COVID, people want to congregate, people want to have fun. And once you create these things, you have to let go because people will make it what they're going to make it. Correct, and it's the folks that make it the reality. It is right. No, but that's the right. Then that's the character, right? That's the fuel. Is the is the people, and that's the also you know with New York is the diversity of people. I mean, you could be, mm-hmm. you know, walking down the street or in a park, and you could be sitting next to, you know, a uh, you know a, a Bob De Niro, and not even realize that you're sitting next to a Bob De Niro, or you know, this is the city is a, is filled with all these different characters from different places. We we were in the new addition to the Natural History Museum the other day, and it was just awesome. I read about it and was excited to go there. And every single voice around me was from a different place. And I know in some parts of the world, diversity feels bad to the people there. And in other places, you hear it and you celebrate it and you get excited. And New York does stand for that. So no, exactly. And listen, that's why, you know, the, the symbol of the Statue of Liberty right. Right, is so meaningful to what New York is all about. 
couple of other topics because we're going to have to wrap up. But you are a civic leader. You spend a lot of time. You're a busy man with your business and you're a busy man in the civic realm. So talk about why you do that and the joy you get, I guess, or the contribution, what it gives to you, what you give back. Yeah, so I, you know, I think it's part of my DNA and it's part of RxR's DNA. And I think that's why when I look at my calendar and my allocation of time, I don't look at my civic responsibilities and say that's diluting my responsibilities from the business standpoint, because I view that we are a values-based company. And we say, you know, doing good and doing well means doing better. And part of what our value base is, is building stronger communities and being engaged and being, you know, a, a, a person that takes responsibility for trying to leave the our communities in the world a better place than where we have found them. And so, and, and a good model that I've, as a role model for me, has been Mike Bloomberg, right? Watching Mike over the years, who I've been close with, you know, he, if you think about Bloomberg LP and Mike's activities, there's really, it's hard to see where the diff, where the start and the end of that is, right? There is uh-huh. a, there's an overall view of where he spends his time and does things that it, in itself is what makes Bloomberg and what makes Mike Bloomberg who he is. And I think that's what, you know, I try to do and we try to do at RxR is, is really look at it as, as part of, you know, the central element of our existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a Jewish word to tukun tukun alam. Alam. I use it, that a lot. It's a value that really comes from a place and it's the season for yeah. the new year. Right. Which is just trying to repair the world, right? Leave the world a better place than, than you fi- found it. And I think, you know, one of the things that I try to stress a lot to people and p- particularly, you know, new pe- younger people, professionals, and they're thinking about how to allocate time is that, uh, or are frustrated with the political system, which is that, you know, we all have to take responsibility, right? That the, this, the, it's not just someone's elected that's responsible for the good of our community. It's that all of us have an opportunity to make our communities better places. All of us have an opportunity to contribute and if we're just pointing fingers and complaining, we're not doing our job, right? And that I think this yep. is, uh, you know, the, uh, Louis Brandeis once said that the, the most important uh, political office is that of private citizen. And I think that, you know, we've not uh, appreciated that enough in terms of from the basics of going out to vote for people that we think are going to uh, do the right thing for our, our communities to just taking responsibility ourselves to making our communities better places or you mentioned nimbyism, right, to to, to uh, not being so focused on what's just good for you and having that overcome what's good for the community as a whole, right? And I think that that's something that, you know, has is, is been uh, a concern of mine um, with a lot of business people in the past, which is that <laughs> you get very, what are my parochial interests? And I'm going to fight for those parochial interests. Or, you know, you see people talk about how important it is to have a clean environment and then there's a windmill built and they're all supportive of it until there's a transmission line running through their community. Or we had, uh, we live in, in the, the village and uh, there was a, uh, a woman's shelter uh, going to be opened down the block from us and everyone in our building was, you know, complaining about this. And, right. you know, my wife just came to me and said, this is ridiculous. They're all complaining. All these people are people that care about, you know, trying to help people. And so instead, let's embrace it. Let's go and try to help them have a stronger community. Um, you know, we have opened a migrant shelter. You're talking about migrant situation. Mm-hmm. And when it, that became a crisis, you know, I reached out to uh, City Hall and said, listen, 
you know, there's got to be a solution that works, that's a win-win and helps these people that doesn't hurt the broader community. And so we've opened up, uh, which is the largest migrant shelter in, uh, in, in, in New York City, where, you know, you'll have segregation for men, for women, for families, and now the implementation of social services, job training, language training, child care, health care. So you get people, because people that are there, they want the opportunity. Right. right. They want to be able to um, they came here. They they risked their lives, their families lives to have an opportunity, just like generation and generation before them came to New York in that context of things. So I think trying to make sure you do what you can do to give them that path forward mm-hmm. is critical. It's interesting. Before I wrote down the word enlightened self-interest and you said parochial interest versus enlightened self-interest. Right. So really interesting contrast. OK, let's change subjects. I want to think of two subjects at the same time. And I'll, I'll say a bunch of things. So Fed, the Fed, the, you're on the New York board of the New York Fed. Interest rates, they're high. The change of interest rates has caused a lot of ripple effects in our industry. We have a wall of defaults potentially coming and likely coming in the real estate, commercial real estate business. And I want to think of office and how office is uh, bifurcating between A and all the rest of the stuff. And what that means for you in the whole business, that's a lot of questions. Right. We could have done a whole podcast just on that. That's what we're supposed to talk about. <laughs> okay, but, but go there with interest rates as a backdrop, but particularly office, particularly class A office and luxury office and what that means. Right. So let me just start with this interest rate piece, right? Yeah. Which is because I think people underappreciate what we're living through right now, right? Which is that we're living through a paradigm shift very much to, as we did back in the 90s when we were talking about when you worked for the Resolution Trust, right? Which was that that was driven by a tax reform that in, you know, up till 1986, people would invest in real estate and they did it for tax benefits. And so it artificially inflated real estate values. We've now, when that tax law has changed, then whatever was valued at a certain price uh, or, or a certain capital structure got turned upside down and didn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. The same, I think, was what's happening now and in, in the parallel, but it's just that we lived through almost two decades of a near zero interest rate environment and an expectation that there was going to be a continuation of that, that low interest rate environment um, and an expectation that even the Federal Reserve was promulgating as part of that, uh, that, that service. And so, you know, now we're now shifting to a more normalized interest rate environment. Yep. And that paradigm shift, again, is saying that anything that was f- uh, financed or and bought or businesses formed in the, you know, the, the pl- past paradigm, right, isn't going to necessarily function effectively. Particularly the recent past paradigm, right. because they didn't have the run up. That That's they right. Could the, right. The last, you know, the last five years or so. So you now need to recognize that these capital structures are, are broken. Yep. And it's not just like 2008, where the, the Fed's going to inject liquidity and it's like a little shot of morphine and everything gets better. This is going to be a long process mm-hmm. of, of loss of, of equity and loss of, of uh, lenders losing money and then recapitalizations and deleveraging of the system. And it's real estate, but it's not just real estate. It's all the corporate financing that had happened as well. Mm-hmm. And it's consumers and small businesses that particularly that are using floating rate debt in the context of things. So I think we're in for a period of time that is going to be you know, more of a painful process, but an inevitable process that we have to go through to reset the deck 
And then when we get to the other side, I'm very bullish about the long-term prospects because we'll be sort of clearing out the underbrush of the uh, right. excess liquidity and um, the, the more speculative nature that existed before, right? So, so, so that's I think where where, where interest rates are, and that's going to hit every wave of of office, whether that's multifamily, logistics, self storage, retail, or office. Layer on top of that, with office in particular, that also has a structural shift post COVID of the of of certain buildings that in a post COVID world and how people think about coming to the workplace will not be able to be competitive. And it's very similar to what happened in the retail space when e-commerce emerged and people could either shop online or go to a mall, but they wouldn't go to a mall if that mall wasn't easy to get to, wasn't engaging, wasn't energizing, wasn't an outing, wasn't activated. And so you saw a lot of malls go out of business and become competitively obsolete. Mm -hmm. The the same thing's gonna happen with office. The offices that can be engaging, that can be magnetic, that are in close to public transportation and energizing communities are gonna do well. The other ones are going to be competitively obsolete. And that's going to be a process that we need to work our way through of how do we deal with those obsolete buildings, mm-hmm. not only for the office sector, but for the downtowns and the communities at large. And let's unpack two parts of that, because the obsolete building sits next to a non-obsolete building. Correct. So there's contagion in the neighborhood from what that causes. And also a great article in the New York Times over the weekend that looked at first floor retail. Right. And it's like 30, 40 percent vacant in different places. And what that then does, because most people don't look up at the office building. They look at what they see at street level. That's right. And it feels brutal. And your wonderful office building next door to that vacant boarded up uh, X restaurant or sandwich shop is going to pull you down too. Right. So the, I, you know, the, there is an urban ecosystem, yeah. right? And, and and if the ecosystem's thrown off balance because you have, for example, to your point, vacant buildings that were once an asset throwing off tax revenue, once an asset by bringing people in that were working and spending money at restaurants and local stores and keeping the streets lively are now sitting there empty and people are hovering around them and it's areas where, you know, crime starts developing around there, right. graffiti and, you know, it's not good for anyone, right? So you, and so th- this is why what we're facing is, it is a civic challenge, right? This is a civic challenge mm-hmm. for urban environments and you, you know, lived in San Francisco, so you see it, you know, close up as to how bad it can get when it gets bad, right? And and so. As I speak to policymakers, you know, I, I stress that, you know, if we do not address this intentionally, aggressively, uh, we run the risk of going through an urban doom cycle that could be a 10 to 20 year process. And while I do believe, and we talked about before, that New York, you know, finds a way to reinvent itself and always comes back better and stronger, it doesn't happen without intentional leadership. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen naturally. And and, and it, you can never always tell if that happens in five years, 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years, right? And that and the longer it goes, the more economic scarring takes place and the harder it is to reverse the cycle. So, you know, this is a moment in time where I really do think you need policymakers to focus on how do we accelerate this transition like we did in Lower Manhattan. You know, mm-hmm. in Lower Manhattan, there was a, you know, a call to duty and there were new policies put in place to convert office buildings to residential. This was going to be a place that was going to be a 24-7 live-work environment. You know, it used to be nine to five, everything below ground. 
Now, Lower Manhattan's, you know, got schools, got parks, got people walking with babies on the streets. It's alive 24-7. Right. Because, you know, intentionally reimagine itself, put zoning in place, put tax incentives in place, and then the, pub, the, the private sector came to life and filled the hole. Mm-hmm. And the combination of the vested interest of the real estate owners, our industry has a lot to do with that. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, part of the challenge, right? Being this messenger is, is you know, people, you know, looking at, well, is this your self-interest or is this about the civic responsibility? And I think the answer is, you know, they're, they're one and the same. Right? I am I mean, not a, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not a cynic. There right. are cynics who say, ah, you don't really care. Who cares if you really care if you're putting the dough in? Right. And I think the reality is that's the nature of real estate, right? Is that, you know, we're the, the value of our business and our buildings is only as good as the, as the, the strength of the communities in which they're located, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have a natural tendency and uh, in, incentive to to build stronger communities. But, uh, but this is a little bit potentially existential, right? Because mm-hmm. of that doom loop concept that could happen if things aren't dealt with uh, appropriately. But between the doom loop and just evolutionary change, if you walk down the street, less here than in some cities, but if you walk down the street, that for ground floor retail, and I love the article in the Times, that said that will have to be reinvented, and it's part of everyone's P&L and NOI that they're getting certain income from that, that's going to change because it's public space. Yeah, so everything has to be reinvented, right? And you use the word P&L. The reality is, and this is probably part of what you need to do when you look at an office building, and, and you know, we did this project called Project Kodak here, which was part of our white paper of, okay, right. you know, intellectually honest, which of our buildings will be competitive, which won't be competitive, and went through a very you know, detailed process to figure out what that would be. And then we layered onto that, okay, even if it's now what we call digital, which would be competitive, what's the capital structure look like? And what do we need to reset that capital structure to be, to be not only competitive in terms of attracting the tenants, mm-hmm. but to be financially sound, right? And I think that that's part of this process. And so we, we're looking at both. And, and part of this is this deleveraging and resetting basis, recognizing that certain things like ground floor retail that we thought was a revenue producer, in some cases still is, but in many cases, it's an important amenity, right? Or, you know, we have on the top floor of this building, 75 Rockefeller Plaza, we have a restaurant and club that people in this building can go to and look down at the at Rock Center, have lunch, make calls, have coffees with people, right? You got to think about activating your buildings differently and the amenities of the building, the retail, the community that your your building's in is all part of the ingredients that's going to make you more competitive or less competitive. And right. then you need to, with that, think about what's the value of that building and what's the capital structure that makes sure it's sustainable. And those are the green light or digital part of the buildings that you own. Some of them you will sell, get rid of, convert. Right, right. And then there's the, the the digital ones are the ones that we're investing in, right? And right. We'll, Project Kodak, right? Makes and then sense. the film are the yeah. ones that you know generally will either um, convert or sell, or if worst case scenario, you know, give back to the lenders if there's not something there. But we're going to be very disciplined as fiduciaries to not invest good money after bad. Now, what's interesting is that we're starting to see um, a resetting of of pricing. And even lenders that, uh, you know, on buildings that, you know, 
we thought were way out of the money relative to what type of loan adjustments we would need, as long as you're willing to put capital in, you have a plan, um, you're starting to see a capitulation where lenders are willing to say, okay, I realize this value to, to do what you need to do needs to be $250 a foot for conversion, as an example, right? Yep. So it's a process that we got to get through. And the, this, you know, we're in the early innings of this process, but as transactions start to happen and people can actually get some price discovery and see some models of how this works, my guess is it will pick up steam more quickly. Mm-hmm. And does it matter if the average worker comes in three and a half days a week, four days a week, four and a half days a week, three days a week? My guess is, especially for the Class A office, that will continue. There'll be less foot traffic for the amenities if it's down on that scale. Right, right. For the office, at the end of the day, if someone's here three days a week or four days a week, they still need the office. They still need the desk, right? So that doesn't really change the amount of office space they need. Right. To your point, the challenge is things like the transit system that was built on five days a week commuters, right? And how does that math work when that doesn't exist? Or the retailers and the restaurants that, you know, we're expecting lunches and after dinner drinks on Friday nights, and that doesn't exist as much as it did. And that's why it is important to, um, you know, even in New York, identify uh, within the the CBD submarkets, the right mix of residential that are here those seven days a week, as well as the uh, at the office and, the, and that, that's to support that whole ecosystem. Yeah. So what haven't we talked about that you want our listeners to know that you think about in your business and in your civic life that we've missed in this conversation? We've covered a lot of ground. I mean, again, I, I think just the probably the, the biggest thing I would say, and this is probably more towards the younger professionals that are looking at this and saying, did I miss my opportunity? You know, what's happening with real estate? I would say this is the opportunity, right? I think one of the things that is, uh, you know, is, is a, a big window uh, for new people coming into the business is they're not burdened by all of the legacy perspectives that myself and others that have been in this business for a long time have, right? They're coming with a fresh perspective mm-hmm. and they're understanding their use of technology and embracing, um, you know, AI and and other tools, and and so I think that you know what I would do is lean into the fact that you have this perspective and consider a strength, not a weakness, as you come into this business. It's interesting if you think of recalibrating reality, think of the repricing of assets. We haven't talked about carbon at all in the conversation, right. but think of carbon being dealt with as we do all of that work over the next 10 years, there's a, and, and the importance of our cities that people care about more than they used to, they understand that they do, then young people coming into the business have a big mission. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, to, to your point, and this is why I said I'm very optimistic on the other side of sort of this cleansing, which is that the, as a country, you know, that what we're going through in terms of the decarbonization and the amount of investment decarbonization the whole digital transformation that every industry is embracing. There's not a tech company. Every company is a tech yep. company and needs to be if they're going to be uh, competitive. And then the whole deglobalization, right? The the onshoring back of supply chains and manufacturing. You know, the, the, there's this just there's going to be I think a a, a period of a below a below a, above trend growth that we probably haven't seen since World War II once we get through the other side of this. Mm. Last comment from me is the discipline that you have of writing a white paper every year 
shows in everything we've talked about. I want to read next year's and I want to see the one in five years because I'm really curious. Okay, absolutely. I'll share you this year's also with you. Fair deal. Hey, Scott, thank you very much. It's a great conversation. Enjoyed it. Thanks very much. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or Leading Voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.